We now move on to questions to the Minister for Communities, and I call John Blair to ask the first question. John Blair. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Question number one. Yeah, thanks very much. Applications for funding to the Job Start scheme opened on the 2nd of April this year. Employers of all sizes, including those in the voluntary and community sector, can participate in the scheme. Applications are categorised by the Job Start team by local council area. The South Antrim Assembly constituency takes um, in a large part of Antrim and Newton Abbey Borough Council. By the 21st of May, 33 employers with a base in Antrim and Newton Abbey Borough Council area had applied for funding to offer job start opportunities. Some of these employers have sought funding for multiple jobs. Uh, my officials are continuing to assess applications and carry out due diligence checks and ensure that young people taking part in the scheme will receive a quality job opportunity along with the support they need to develop the occupational and employability skills that will help them to achieve sustained employment in the future. My officials will continue to engage with a range of organisations to inform them of the opportunities within the Job Start scheme and indeed a multi-channel through different forms of media, both TV, radio, digital and social media advertising, commenced on Monday the 10th of May. This will ensure that potential employers and young people are aware of the scheme and where to access information on the NI Direct and the NI Business Info websites. John Blair. Mr Speaker, I thank the Minister for that answer and, and the specifics around South Andrew. Can I ask, uh, in relation to South Andrew and also more generally, what, what action is being taken um, in addition to those uh, measures outlined to um, encourage young adults aged 16 to 24 to apply? and also if any incentives are being offered to, to enhance that encouragement to apply? Well, we are trying to use social media outputs, working through the local councils in terms of looking at economic development um, and job skills opportunities, also through our social security offices. I know as they begin to ease out of restrictions as well, there will be greater opportunities there. And as I say, trying to get information into the voluntary and community sector who not only can avail of job placement opportunities themselves, but also as a way of spreading the word out there um, to the opportunities um, that can take place. So I'm more than happy if there's additional things that we can be doing more specific to certain areas, um, then I'm keen and open to explore that with officials in the department. Call Carolyn Mullen. I thank the Minister for her response um, and for commitment to create opportunities for our young people, particularly in constituencies such as my own. Can the Minister outline how many job opportunities in total will be created throughout the Job Start scheme? Yeah, so there's, um, in terms of the date, obviously uh, we have had over 410 employers have applied. There's been 1,200 Job Start um, jobs that have been applied for as part of that um, as well. To date, the funding approved um, for 269 uh, jobs as part of the scheme. 68 of those have been advertised in the job centre and online. And there's still opportunities for an additional just over 1,000 then um, opportunities still outstanding for young people to apply for. Matthew O'Toole. 
Thank you, uh, Mr. Speaker. Um, job start scheme is really important uh, in terms of getting young people into work. We know they face a real, um, they face a crisis basically coming out of uh, COVID. It's also important that we don't forget about um, older workers uh, who will also have faced huge challenges through COVID-19. Many will be on furlough or have lost their jobs. Um, what specifically is the department working on to enable um, older workers uh, who, who face these challenges to get back into work? We are also to run alongside the Job Start scheme. We're looking at a similar scheme for older workers. Um, we're in the middle of putting uh, provisions in place to take that forward, and I am hopeful to make an announcement on that in the short time ahead. Moving on to Alan Chambers. A question to you, Mr. Speaker. Thanks very much. There are a total of 1,890 applicants on the common waiting list for the allocation of a social home in the North Down area as of the 31st of March this year. Of these, 1,319 were deemed to be in housing stress, while 275 have been allocated over the last year. Um, I am acutely aware that there is a shortage obviously, in the supply of homes, and this does need to be addressed urgently. To do so, I have set out an ambitious long-term plan to increase the supply of social and affordable housing, reduce the housing stress. However, these plans will take time to come to fruition, and whilst I share the concerns about the numbers waiting on a home, the projected outcome of my plans is about ensuring that there is a supply of social homes meeting the increased demand going forward. Crucial to this protection of the social homes is also about um, assure, ensuring sorry, the existing stock that we have, and obviously I am keen to consult around the um, purchase uh, the buy scheme. Um, onto the housing executive as well, um, and we're looking at other opportunities through a housing supply strategy, working with the infrastructure and other practical barriers that are there in terms of house building. The biggest area as well is getting the housing executive um, to build again, um, and that's one of the critical areas in dealing with the investment challenges that they have, ensuring that the structure is there, that they're able to borrow, and that that money is not taken from the Black Grant. That's one of the barriers um, at the moment. And obviously, through the Social Housing Development Programme, there's £162 million um, in terms of social housing for this year going forward um, around that. And obviously, in the North Down area, there's a further 551 new social homes between now and 2025 that we're earmarking for development over the next couple of years. So, happy to engage further um, on those issues to your specific area. Alan Chambers, supplementary. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I thank the Minister for her answer. But can the Minister detail how many newly acquired properties the Housing Executive plans on making immediately available uh, to North Down residents in the next 12 months? There are 18 uh, new social housing units that are currently under construction within the North Down area. I am aware that there are several schemes that have been proposed. And obviously, we're doing the due diligence, working with housing associations over the common period to try and bring those across the line as soon as possible. And as I said, between now and 2025, there is a target under the Social Housing Development Programme of a further 551 homes uh, to be carried forward as well. I call Carol Nicholson. From and thank the member, the minister, sorry for a response to um, Alan Chambers' question. She will remember a couple of years ago there was actually more homes being built in North Down than what there was in North Belfast, despite three and a half times the need. But can the Minister give an update on her plans to bring forward not just social but also affordable homes for all the constituencies? Thank you. 
Yeah, well, obviously, this is part of the revitalisation programme uh, with the housing executive on the first hand to deal with their investment and borrowing challenges to make sure that they're structured in a way that they can borrow finances that doesn't have an impact on the block grant because currently any money that they would borrow would be taken directly off the block grant, so it would defeat the purpose. So we're looking at issues around that. We obviously dealt with the issue of corporation tax, which was one area, and obviously we're trying to recoup uh, around £56 million um, that has been paid to the Treasury over the last number of years, so we're in continued negotiations around that as well. As I said, I'm keen to bring forward a consultation on the future of the Housing Executive's uh, House Sales Schemes, and this is primarily about protecting the current supply of social homes and what we're losing through that right-to-buy scheme. But also, I'm uh, wanting to look at co-ownership and other models of uh, home ownership as well. And obviously, I'm looking to bring forward and introduce an intermediate rent to provide an additional and good quality supply of housing as well. We're also obviously making changes, and I'm looking at implementation soon in terms of the review of the housing selection scheme and looking at the points system to make sure that we're quickly assessing people and that they're getting the appropriate points. And I'm also conducting, and we're going out soon, on a housing supply strategy, so that will provide the framework for addressing the whole system approach and what the impacts um, or blockages are around delivery. All of these will come together. I have given a commitment um, that is part of the ministerial that was led actually by the member who asked the question in November that those investment challenges and opportunities going forward will be presented to the executive uh, by March of next year. I call Trevor Clark. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Speaker. And can I thank the Minister for her answers thus far? <clears throat> Just following on from her last response in relation to the housing selection scheme and how there's going to be a review of that, will there be a review? And I mean, there's, there's no question of doubt in terms of the need of houses, whether it be in North Down, South Antrim, or indeed West Belfast, or all our constituencies. But however, as of this last number of years that housing associations have been doing those buildings, in my constituency in particular, I can think of one Nidsbrook view, where everybody nearly that's moved into that development has been. Uh, moved in there under the shadow of darkness because they've been put out of another state. But the police are visiting these new developments at least twice a week, where the police, fire service and ambulance service. And most of these new developments, particularly in my constituency, have been dealt with problems. Has any work been done specifically in that to make sure that these people aren't moved from one development to another? Well, there's ongoing work in terms of uh, the housing selection scheme. There was a consultation that had taken place. Obviously, the Assembly um, had been down for a while, um, and I know in my absence last year when I was ill, obviously Carl Nicollum, when she was in as the Minister, brought forward there were 20 recommendations as part of that review. 18 of those were adopted by the Department for work to go on. The Housing Executive then, with the Department, have set up uh, structures internally in terms of implementing those recommendations. That's going to take a period um, of uh, between one to two and a half years for that to be done because new systems have to be put in place in terms of what the new point system is going to look like. Uh, there are two areas that haven't been taken forward and more work is being done, and that is around the use or access of intimidation points um, and interim points as well. Um, there's more assessments being done. Obviously, there was a concern just to remove those right away, and particularly looking at issues of domestic violence. 
gender-based violence as well and those who are intimidated um, and they have to have a place to go. So that work is ongoing at the moment um, and I am hopeful over the next short while we'll have clarity on the way forward around the intimidation points and the ongoing review and implementation of the remaining 18 recommendations. Uh, work has already started on those. Nicole Clare Sugden. Uh, question number three. Thank you. I'm pleased um, that live music, indoors and outdoors, can now be performed, although subject to a number of limits and specific inclusions in the interest of safety. From the 24th of May, the number of people permitted indoor and outdoor gatherings was increased, supporting the return of arts and cultural activities, including live music. The maximum size of an indoor gathering is now based on the capacity of the venue, and up to 500 people can from an audience at an outdoor uh, gathering. Risk assessments and social distancing measures need to be in place, and these new limits do not supersede specific restrictions contained in the legislation on live music and hospitality venues or at post-ceremony celebrations for civil partnerships and weddings. These steps are welcome and take considerably um, way along the pathway in the opening of our culture, arts and heritage uh, sectors, with all of the social and economic benefits they bring. However, it is vital that we continue to be careful and stick to the rules of the guidance. I recognise the importance of getting uh, the sectors, and particularly around arts and cultural sectors, back up and running again. And for that reason, I established a culture, arts and heritage recovery task force chaired by Rotha Johnson and drawn from members from right across those sectors, including the music industry as well. And I recently met with Music NI to discuss some of the specific issues around music venues and also events such as festivals. I have now asked the task force to consider what support might be needed for those activities and livelihoods to continue um, to be impacted by COVID. And the task force will look at measures to support reopening and recovery in the short term as well as informing the work in the longer term around the strategy uh, for culture, arts and heritage going forward. Claire Shogden, supplementary. Uh, thank you, Mr Speaker. And I, I thank the Minister for her response. That this will be uh, welcome news, not least to those businesses who depend on live music you know, to, to aid their recovery. Um, I also acknowledge uh, her comments in relation to being tentative moving forward. Um, but does the Minister have any concerns in, in some of the comments from the UK Government about potentially going into a third wave, particularly with big events um, like this? And, and how is she preparing for, for that potential outcome? Yeah, obviously we're conscious and we move at a different um, pace to the opening and I know that's drawn criticism um, in terms of our pathway to recovery. Uh, we have been engaging with this on a weekly basis in the executive and indeed this issue will be raised I'm sure again this week and get into next week as we start to look at the next phase of restrictions and easings. I mean we're moving well on the one hand in terms of the vaccination programme, uh, the numbers that we're having and that's obviously having an impact. There are still assessments being done around the Indian variant and any other variants um, that may come into place as well. And I suppose this was one of primarily the reasons of having the task force created. So it's starting to work with the sector, with those who have an expertise in managing events and how to do events safely. They do this pretty much for most of their lives and it's uh, part of the work that they do. So 
We want to engage them, and I know they have been meeting already. They have been going out and trying to meet with individuals and groups over the last week or so to come back with firm recommendations on the way forward. I am hopeful over the next few weeks, short weeks, that I can make more announcements around music and getting events up and running again. There have been the pilots as well in Liverpool. Um, around some of the festival events and uh, measures that have been introduced there. So we're obviously continuing via the Health Minister to engage with SAGE and others um, around learning and lessons from that and how that can then transpire in terms of what we do here. So I'll continue to keep members up to date on that. And as I say, we are making those assessments at the moment, working with health, obviously looking at the cultural impacts, the economic and social impacts of keeping the current restrictions in place but I am hopeful that we can start to move to have music again, to have events again um, in the short term. And indeed, with the release of the budget around COVID monies, I now have financial support for the culture, arts and music sector going forward in the short term as well, which has been welcomed by them. Nicole Sinead Ennis. Um, Minister, those who make a living from performing were obviously some of the most um, affected uh, by, as a result of the pandemic, um, and despite that, they have been to the forefront of keeping the public morale up in terms of online performances. So I commend them for that, and I also want to commend the minister for the the supports that you um, put in place to support the, that that sector, minister. Um, but you know, do, does the minister? I know she's outlined some of it there in her, in her response to previous questions. But do, is there a recognition from the minister, and does she agree that going forward there will need to be continued support um, for that sector? As we, as we you know, progress through the recovery. Thank you. Yeah, no, there definitely does, and that was why I'm glad my full COVID bid was met in terms of the monies that was allocated just over two weeks ago. The issue of freelancers has been a very significant issue where they have been directly impacted, and that's why on the task force I've made um, spaces available there for freelancers um, and where the nominations came from the sector themselves, so therefore they were nominating who they feel could best represent the sectors. Obviously, they're still being impacted, probably more so than other industries, because they have been effectively shut. They haven't been able to play music or participate in other live events or festivals or gigs. And obviously, as part of that COVID money in terms of recovery and safe opening up, we are continuing through the task force to look at schemes that can support them until we're in a position that society and that part of the economy is fully open. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Just, just to go for, for clarity, Minister, um, I understand Van Morrison is scheduled to appear at the Europa Hotel over four nights starting on the 10th of June. Are you saying that if there is an appropriate risk assessment, that those concerts can go ahead? Asking for a friend. Yes, they keep as long as they keep within the regulations that there's an assessment of the venue says. So it's recognising different venues will have different capacities and that a risk assessment is conducted um, for them. There is an issue at the moment, obviously, in terms of how loud music can be within a venue, and obviously they would need to adhere to that. But I am hopeful as part of the task force work this issue um, around live music and how loud that can be played will start to be taken forward with more easements in the coming weeks. Mark Durgan. I can't call you. I thank the Minister for her answer and look forward to an announcements, hopefully in the very near future, on the resumption of music that will allow performers and, and, and ancillary industries to earn a living and also enhance our and everyone's in, in enjoyment 
of life. Uh, could I ask uh, the Minister to clarify whether entertainment, and I'm thinking specifically of stand-up comedy, will fall into the same category as live music, or if they can uh, resume on June the 21st in line with theatres reopening? And that really is on behalf of a friend. <laughs> Are you a stand-up comedian? Are you? You <laughs> um, well, that, obviously the 21st is an indicative date. We're doing work at the moment with the task force and obviously working with uh, the health department in terms of bringing forward more specifics um, in the time ahead to start to get venues opened. I think mitigations can be put in place if you're doing a stand-up comedy. I think the issue with music generally from a public health perspective was the louder the music is, the more people have to shout. And then it's the transmission um, of spit and other things in terms of the virus itself. That said, we are actively looking at mitigations that can be put in. Um, venues now going forward, if the indicative date is given, um, can do that with an increased capacity, depending on the size of the venue, um, to have events such as stand-up comedy and others, making sure, though, that a risk assessment is being carried out. So more information will be given. Um, after this week's executive and also the following week as well, once those assessments are finished with the health department. Verbal story. Question number four, Mr. Speaker. So, just the Ballygastle um, Town uh, Strategy was published in 2009, and earlier this year, my department provided funding to enable it to be reviewed. The review is ongoing and has involved consultation with local elected reps, businesses community interests and relevant statutory bodies. The revised town uh, strategy or master plan, as it will intend to be called moving forward, will focus on the regeneration projects that will allow Ballycastle Town Centre to grow and prosper and also to diversify in the years ahead. The review will be completed uh, this month in June and my department will work closely with Causeway Coast and Glensborough Council and other statutory bodies to agree how best we implement the recommendations of the master plan going forward. Thank you, Mr. Speaker, and I thank the Minister for her answer. The Minister will be aware that this has been on the cards now since 2009, and there has been limited progress made. When I was Minister, we had the successful revitalisation scheme, which brought some uh, 200,000 into the local area in relation to the shops. But will the Minister give a commitment that the concerns of the local residents, particularly in relation to the issue of the seafront and the ter ferry terminal, uh, which uh, supplies and is very important for Rathen Island, will be taken into consideration? Will she also give a commitment for a financial package in relation to this? And also will she agree to meet with me and local businesses to discuss the development plan as it unfolds? Yeah, well, obviously, we're waiting on uh, the review of the master plan being presented to us within the department. As I say, there has been ongoing engagement with the council, who have in turn been engaging with the local community as well. Um, so I am hopeful that that review will pick up the concerns, the aspirations, the hopes of the local community there. In terms of the specifics, I mean, I don't have the plan yet. So once I do, uh, Mervyn, in terms of the seafront and the ferry terminal, they're more than happy to meet with you. And if that's on site in Ballycastle um, to get me up the coast, uh, more than happy to do that. Um, probably the most notable thing about the strategy is that it's been on the books for so long, since 2009, with very little progress. But going forward, 
Is, has the Minister any consciousness or any plans in relation not just to Ballycastle Town, but to the many rural villages in that part of North Antrim which have suffered immense neglect in terms of community development? In terms of um, regeneration and budgets that go along with regeneration, traditionally within the department, that has been focused on urban areas and particularly in larger populations. In recognising, because there have been a number of members in this chamber that have raised this point in terms of smaller rural settlements, and obviously a lot of those in previous years or mandates have been focused towards DERA. Um, we have done some good work with DERA um, in responding to COVID and releasing monies uh, jointly in terms of meeting the community need, particularly in rural communities. So again, I have engaged um, them in looking at regeneration monies um, and to see if I can expand that out now to start to look at rural settlements and areas as well. Early conversations have started with DERA. The DERA ministers responded positively and our officials are engaging to see what is the best way forward to address those specific concerns. So if there are issues, or again, if you want to speak to me, more than happy to do that. And I'll update members um, once those conversations with DERA and a way forward conclude. And I hope that that will be soon. Call Les Cummins. Can Corlin thank the Minister for her answer so far? Minister, could you give me an update on the Newry City Centre Master Plan, please? I don't have an update on the Master Plan here now. I know there's been engagements with the local council around that, so sorry, I can write uh, to you just to give you a more specific update on actions um, that have been taking place. Kelly Armstrong. Thank you very much, Mr. Speaker, and thank you very much, Minister. Minister, um, I'm glad to hear the, the update on Ballycastle Town strategy. But could you confirm when the High Street strategy will confirm actions to assist all towns to recover from the impacts of COVID? There's ongoing engagements with local councils and in the department at the moment. Obviously, there was monies also that went out as part of COVID in terms of the revitalisation uh, fund that went into local councils um, and that would hit town centres uh, as well in terms of looking at revitalisation. So once those conversations conclude, we'll be outlining the direction of travel very shortly. So once I have more detail on that, um, Kelly, I can write to you uh, formally as well and then update the committee in the chamber. Thank you. The Sports Sustainability Fund has provided funding totalling £23 million to 35 sports governing bodies to cover their losses and those of their affiliated clubs. I can advise that awards have been made through the sport governing bodies to 452 individual beneficiaries of the fund. The funding has proven to be essential to help sustain our sports sector and the services they provide to local communities. The sports governing bodies and their clubs have been able to provide a safe return to activities as the restrictions have been lifted. Sport NI are now involved in a post-award vouching and verification process to ensure the funds have been used for the purposes provided. Should any irregularities in the fund, um, Sport NI has the option to request partial or full recovery of those funds. Thank the Minister for that. And, uh, I welcome the fact that the greatest part of this support has gone to grassroots sporting organisations. Uh, and it's particularly encouraging that women's sport has featured so prominently. And would the minister agree with me that uh, 
Uh, grassroots organized, sporting organizations have played a vital role during the pandemic. They're often the linchpin in the communities that they're from, uh, and it's important that they continue to be supported in the future. Yeah, thanks very much. Almost 80% of this funding has went to grassroots sports organisations um, across the north, um, as I say, through all of those governing bodies. Sports has played a huge role. I mean, I know at the start of the pandemic, working with the executive office, primarily the IFA, Ulster Rugby and the GAA came together to look at how they could provide a strategic response in assisting whether that was vaccination rollout, food response, looking at medical supplies, and we worked really well with those. I also know in meeting over the last year, and particularly the last few months, grassroots sports clubs right across the north in urban and rural settings, the contribution that they made in the pandemic within their local community, offering their uh, sports facilities and clubs in order to help that community response in delivering food parcels um, and other issues as well. And it's something that I want to continue to engage with them. I mean, I know one of the biggest areas is around um, the need for small capital resources to assist clubs further where they can upgrade the facilities that they have. And I'm hopeful to look at a scheme coming forward in the short term to support them uh, further in the time ahead. Joseph McNulty, very briefly, please. Minister, uh, fortitude and prudence, that's the motto of College Land O'Reilly's Kumar Lukash Gale, who you visited with me a number of weeks back. We were very grateful for the support you received. Minister, can you give me your assessment of whether the Sports Sustainability Fund has uh, achieved its purpose and uh, the consequ- you know, addressing the issues as a result of the consequences of the pandemic? And who, how do you advise small clubs who have lost their funding streams through the pandemic? To What funding streams are available for them to access to improve their facilities for a small rural uh, club in, in Armagh? Yeah, no, well, I was delighted to be in Armagh and to visit the club. Um, and you could just see with the young people that are on the pitch, both playing uh, camogie, hurling and uh, football, just the impact that it had. And I know in talking to the families and some of the coaches, just having young people back playing sports again, it's been a really good thing. And obviously the contribution um, that clubs like that um, have had over this last year. And really when they haven't been there playing, the absence of that, just you know, the loss that the community has felt um, and a real value for the contribution that they make to society and particularly in, in rural communities um, as well. So, I mean, I do want to support them. I do think that the Sports Sustainability Fund did play a critical role. I think when the committee looked at this, um, they recognised that as well. Um, I think the fact that almost 80% of the funds went into grassroots sports kind of demonstrates the demand that was there and also the need that was there as well. I mean, I recognise that some fell through that. They didn't get the apply in time. Um, there are now issues you know, moving forward in terms of the opening up and those that still find themselves in hardship. We did get uh, more money under the COVID monies recently around sport, an additional five million. And obviously, I want to work with grassroots clubs and also the governing bodies and how we can look at that going forward to reassess the need. And obviously, working with Sport NI, there are also opportunities. I mean, I would say to any club listening um, to make sure you're registered with Sport NI for opportunities around funding um, and support that is available. There is a small part of money that can be uh, applied to via Sport NI to look at sustainability of clubs post-COVID. And again, I would just advise people to go to the Sport NI website um, to get assistance around that. And that ends the period for list of questions. We now move on to 15 minutes of a topical question. And I call Trevor Lunn. Thank you very much, Mr. Speaker. Um, 
the, the Minister mentioned intimidation points a while ago in answer to Mr Clark's question. Can, can I ask her, is, is BASE 2 still being used to assess applications in respect of intimidation points? Yes, there's still an engagement there, and obviously working with the PSNI as well around verification. I think there is a recognition in terms of looking at the housing selection scheme and looking at the issue of intimidation points more. Uh, we need to look at that verification process and making sure that that's as stringent um, as it can possibly be um, for those who have been intimidated and also weeding out um, others who haven't, who are maybe trying to use the system. So those assessments are ongoing at the moment and obviously looking at the issue when the consultation on the housing selection scheme was brought out, the issue of women, gender balance, domestic balance uh, was brought up very strongly as well. Um, and I suppose a concern that if you remove them now uh, without doing more work, um, you could leave people uh, disadvantaged. So yes, work is continuing and obviously we're doing a review of intimidation points more broadly. Um, and I'll be bringing that back to the committee as soon as we've concluded that. Supplementary, Trevor Lund. Yes, I thank the Minister for her answer. Um, uh, Mrs Nakulian, in the Minister's absence a few months ago, uh, indicated that uh, as possible a new body would be set up to replace BASE 2. So if, if that happened, can we be assured that any new assessment body will not have in its membership persons with a known association to criminal or paramilitary groups, given that such organisations are themselves involved in intimidation and expulsion activity? Yeah, thank you, Annie. I mean, if we're going to go ahead with a new body, all of that's being assessed at the moment, so I can't give too much now until all of that's done. But I think there is a recognition to make sure that the evidence presented is robust, that it's clear. Um, there is a recognition, you know, that not everybody still goes to the PSNI, albeit that's the main body in terms of getting evidence around um, intimidation and also looking at uh, community um, information that's coming forward as well to support a claim um, or not. So obviously we're looking at all of that at the moment. We're obviously looking at any implications or unattended consequences for next steps. And once I have clarity on a way forward, I'll come back and present, but I'll also follow it up in a, um, a response to yourself specifically. Could the Minister give some detail on the uh, expected benefits in the planned reform of the gambling legislation, which he's uh, uh, just brought forward? Yeah, well, obviously, I got agreement, um, thankfully, thankfully sorry, from uh, my executive colleagues in terms of bringing forward this bill. I know there was a brief presentation to the committee last week, and obviously, it will be presented in, in the coming period. Um, the gambling uh, changes, I mean, there hasn't been a change in the legislation from when I was five years old, 35 years ago, um, so, or 36 years ago. So it's long overdue. Uh, when the legislation was there, the internet wasn't a thing, it wasn't created. And again, it shows there's a need for a review. I have agreed to take the gambling legislation. Obviously, there's been consultation, there's a lot of interest within the chamber on the important issues of reforming the existing laws. But we're going to do it in a two-phased approach. So the first phase going forward now, that I am hopeful will be done by the end of this mandate, is to look at introducing a code of practice on uh, those who are operating, is to look at a levy, um, is to bring in uh, new criminal proceedings um, around those who allow young people, particularly around gaming machines. So there are a number of changes and also easements around 
proposals for Good Friday and Sunday openings, and again as well to allow charities to raise money. This was an issue was raised by NICFA. Um, they allow them to sell ballots um, online and as a way of fundraising, and particularly during the COVID pandemic, when you weren't allowed to meet in person, that became a vital issue um, around their resources and funds. The second part of the legislation will be more work needs to be done, and we're starting that around online gambling, which is probably a bigger issue. Um, because it is unregulated. Um, there are issues around advertising laws, which are reserved matters. So in recognising we're not going to get all of that through in this mandate, I am starting assessment works, consultation works to be carried out so that we can start prepping legislation for the new mandate after the election next year. Supplementary, Jerry Kelly. Uh, um, and it was a very uh, I thank the Minister for her answer, and it was uh, very comprehensive. She may have taken some of my questions off me. Um, but in terms of, you know, I want to thank her for the determination to deal with the issue. Uh, but given that the legislation has not kept uh, up with technological changes, and she touched on this in her answer, could she also provide some detail on the main issues emerging from the consultation around that? Yeah, I think it's a huge area, and it's probably the biggest area in fairness, because this legislation that we currently have, um, there was no internet at that time, so it is completely unregulated um, in that sense, although there are other powers um, that can be used in the interim. So there has to be consultation and engagement to look at the nature of online gambling, how widespread it is, uh, the impacts that it has here. There's obviously issues then around reserved matters at Westminster, um, around advertising, for example, as well, um, that we need to pick up on. So work is going to begin around those areas, and that's why we're breaking the legislation down. I wanted to make sure that we brought in some protections in this mandate, and that's the bill that I've presented to the executive last week. Work is ongoing now then to look particularly at the bigger area of online gambling for legislation to be ready for the next mandate. Thank you, Robin Newton. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Uh, Minister, via the Communities Committee, of which I am a member, and via written questions, I have attempted to find out if the Job Start scheme uh, allows the participants to get a vocational qualification. I have been amazed at the different answers when a simple yes or no would have been sufficient. Would the Minister confirm if participants in a Job Start scheme will get, can work towards a vocational qualification? There can. It will depend on the employer and the other support that they can get um, within the Social Security Department. So obviously, the opportunities are six-month placements. They don't go beyond that unless um, you're registered as disabled. You can go for a nine-month placement. So to get a vocational training in that time scale may be restrictive, depending on what it is you want to do. But there is flexibility working with uh, work coaches um, that any young person or individual or indeed company that want to offer training opportunities that we can look to support that uh, through schemes going forward. So there's nothing set down specifically to say you're going to get a vocational qualification, albeit we would want to encourage that because the whole point of job start is to make sure that people are work ready, is that they are being skilled up. We could offer other opportunities you know, around we do the CV uh, support, we do application support. You know, we can look at training opportunities. We have obviously made changes, I know it won't be relating to this, but around universal credit and childcare in terms of trying to free up opportunities there um, for uh, people who have children. 
um, to look at getting into employment. So, yes, they can be looked at um, on individual. But I'll go back. If you haven't had a specific answer to the question, um, Robin, I'll go back and see why and then respond to you directly. Supplementary, Robin Newton. Thank, thank you, Mr. Speaker. It just seems simply the answer is no. You cannot get, as JobStart is operating today, you cannot get a vocational qualification. So you enrol in the programme and you leave without a qualification to say uh, how you have benchmarked yourself against an NVQ 1, 2 or 3, whatever it might be. But can I ask the Minister how many employers have enrolled now to deliver the JobStart scheme? There is over 405 um, employers who have enrolled um, to deliver it in a variety uh, of areas. Um, and I have visited some of those employers recently. Obviously, we are looking. I mean, the Job Start scheme is one element of support that we can offer within the department. We're obviously also working with the Department of Economy as well. So it is a limited scheme in some ways. It's a six-month placement. It's to give people the opportunity to be in a workplace where that's funded, to get to work with um, an employer and with other employees, and really to build um, the area to see if they're interested in that as a career path. We can then support them through the wider Social Security Agency supports that if they do want to progress along that career or looking at another career opportunity as well. And we're obviously working with the Economy Minister in terms of apprenticeship opportunities as a way of progression beyond the Job Start scheme. I call Chris Little. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. The Minister is a big supporter of sport and spoke warmly of enlisted questions of her visits to Gaelic clubs across Northern Ireland. Um, can I ask why she has declined my invitation to meet with Glentorn Football Club to learn more about the valuable work they are doing, the needs they have, and indeed the exciting plans they have for future development to promote sporting and community development in an area designated for community regeneration in Inner East Belfast? Well, I haven't just met Gaelic clubs. I've met football teams, I've met rugby teams, I've met hockey. Um, I've met a variety of sports um, over the last while, and obviously even in the midst of lockdown, I've met many uh, sports organisations in terms of responding to COVID. I have said previously um, that I am willing to meet with clubs. Obviously, in the context of sub-regional stadia, um, I need to watch engaging clubs when I'm going to be making a decision on a future programme as well. But I'm more than happy uh, to meet with yourself and with the club, uh, Glen Torn, as well, if no issue at all. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I welcome that answer, and we can, of course, uh, in any visitor meeting, uh, highlight the excellent work that goes on to support boys, girls, uh, inclusive disability football programmes, and plans for uh, contributing to community regeneration. I think the minister would be really excited by the plans in place at Glentorn Football Club, and I'd, I'd be delighted if she uh, joined me to meet with the club. There's no problem. No matter where I go, somebody's a member of Glen Torn in one way or another, um, even though I'm not, admittedly. Um, but more than happy to take up the invite. Next member is not in his place, and I now call Linda Dillon. Minister, I want to commend you for fulfilling the commitment um, set out in NDNA to provide a translation hub. Can you provide an assessment of the expected use of the hub and what services are available? Yeah, so just obviously there's been the establishment of the central translation hub. It was one of the commitments in new decade, new approach. 
phase one of the establishment of the hub for Irish and Ulster Scots went live in April of this year, phase two, the establishment of a framework contract managed by the hub for newcomer languages will go live in October um, of this year as well. And initially, the hub is using a hybrid model for operations, which includes an in-house team of Irish translation and enhanced outsource collaborative framework, providing written translation for all. Also, the sourcing of Ulster Scots translations um, is uh, presenting some unique challenges, including the lack of an agreed standard in terms of spelling, grammar and terminology. But we're continuing to work with the Ulster Scots Agency and others um, in terms of the development of uh, that aspect of the translation hub as well. In the first five weeks in the operation of the hub, there's been uh, 36 requests for Irish translations totaling 172,000 words and four requests for Ulster Scots translations, totaling 7,000 words. Linda Dillon, supplementary. Can I thank the Minister for her answer? And I suppose I should declare an interest at this point as a mother of a child who's been taught through the, the medium of Irish and somebody that has a, a, a great keen interest in it. Can you give us an update on the Irish language strategy, please? Yeah, well, just at the moment, obviously, I have responsibility to bring forward um, a number of strategies, including the Irish language and Ulster Scots strategy, and obviously I'm committed uh, to bringing those forward. I wanted to adopt the same approach as our other inclusion strategies around gender, LGBTQI, disability and anti-poverty, where we want to set up an expert panel that brings forward research and, and where the situation is at the moment in terms of the languages and heritage aspects and then to look at a co-design approach, working with the Ulster Scots community and Irish language community as well, and bringing forward that. I've obviously put my proposals forward to the executive, and I'm just waiting on that being approved to go ahead and to set up the expert panel and the co-design groups. I call Andy Allen, and you won't have time for a supplementary. No problem. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Can I thank the minister for meeting with me recently to discuss the Masonettes on Nagoni Avenue? And I wonder if the minister might be able to provide an update on her department's consideration of the Northern Ireland Town Executive's proposal. It's still being looked at, Andy, at the moment. So I will be doing a meeting again soon with officials. Um, but I have your meeting. I have it on my to-do list um, in terms of issues that we're going to be picking up. So they're doing some final assessments. Um, in terms of some of the additional information that you provided at the meeting. Um, and as soon as I have a, a way forward, I'll come back to you directly just to update you. The members, and time is up. And members, please take your ease for a moment or two to switch the table. Thank you.